Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talk to Kevin Thomason, who is the vice chair of the Grand River Environmental Network. Guelph is part of the Grand River Watershed, which connects us to portions of Gray County in the north, to portions of Haldeman County in the south, so it covers a big part of southern Ontario. Institutionally, it's reflective of an environmental reality where everything is connected. So what happens in one part of the system literally affects us downstream. And that's why so many people in Ontario were concerned about losing portions of the Greenbelt, even if they lived nowhere in the area of the Greenbelt. Now, there was a lot to complain about when it comes to the Ontario provincial government in 2023, but complaints were always the loudest when it came to the decision to open the Greenbelt to development. And then they decided to undo it. The surprising ability to change minds is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. It was almost exactly one year ago that the first protests began to the announcement that the Ontario government was going to remove parcels of the Green Belt to allow for new development. Despite Doug Ford's promise that his government would never touch the Green Belt, which is a 7,300 square kilometer band of rural and agricultural land that runs from the Niagara Peninsula to the eastern end of the GTA. Over a dozen parcels representing 7,400 acres of land were removed, so theoretically they could be earmarked for new housing. Here in Guelph, hundreds and hundreds of people came out on a cold Sunday morning to express their outrage. And it wasn't for the last time, as protests continued all over Ontario for much of the last year. Then things started changing this past summer. Ontario's Auditor General released a scathing report into how the Greenbelt land swap came about, which started a chain of events that ended with Ford putting all the Greenbelt land back in a September announcement following a cabinet retreat. In between, there were renewed waves of protests, the biggest one being outside Bigamins in Kitchener, which was the site of a Ford Fest event in early September, and it attracted about a thousand different people who were all there, and they were all on their last nerve when it came to the events around the Greenbelt. Turns out Ford was on his last nerve, too. One of the organizers of that event was the Grand River Environmental Network, and Kevin Thomason was there to help marshal all the people who came out that day to tell Doug Ford how they felt. He joins us on this podcast to tell us why this was a good year for the Greenbelt, but he's also going to tell us why the work isn't over yet. So on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast, Thomason's going to cover the work that the Grand River Environmental Network did to organize people in the last year, why so many people took the encroachment on the Greenbelt so personally, and why Ford Fest in Kitchener was Doug Ford's Waterloo, so to speak. We will also talk about Doug Ford's thinking about the environment, why the Greenbelt was the tip of the iceberg in terms of environmental protection issues, and why climate change isn't a bigger issue after the wildfire season that we all just experienced. And finally, we will discuss the places in Ontario that are doing well on fighting climate change, the failures connecting the climate crisis to the affordability crisis, and whether or not the provincial government has learned any lessons from the last year. So I caught up with Kevin Thomason earlier this week via Zoom. Okay, Kevin Thomason, thank you so much for joining me today. Good morning. Uh, 
first for people who are listening and may not be aware of your work, can you just give a brief description about who the Grand River Environmental Network are and, and what you do? Yeah, I'm vice chair of the Grand River Environmental Network, and uh, Grand has been around for years. Uh, we span the entire Grand River watershed and basically are a longtime group of uh, activists, citizens, uh, uh, concerned uh, individuals, other groups and organizations that have worked for years to advocate for the environment within the Grand River watershed. And it could be everything from water usage to recycling to nuclear waste dumping to, uh, you know, trying to ensure things like uh, rapid transit and public transit and walkable communities and green development standards. Uh, a lot of time spent on land use planning. Uh, so th things like our green belt and protected areas and land trusts and that sort of thing as well. So it's been a busy year for you is what you're saying. Well, it's been a busy, busy decade or two, but the, the group has an amazing legacy. We're, uh, uh, you know, a, a very knowledgeable group when you look at all the uh, the backgrounds of uh, the various citizens who are involved, uh, you know, be it retired professors or all kinds of uh, uh, professional planners or politicians or whatever. Uh, it's just a great cross section of the community that uh, uh, allows us to speak out knowledgeably on a lot of different uh, activities and events. And issues we we can joke about it um but you know i am looking at the calendar here it was almost a, a year and a week to the day as we're recording here yeah. that i remember the first protests about what the provincial government was planning about the green belt yeah. so thinking back to that weekend a year a year and a week ago so 53 weeks ago um yeah. did you think we'd be sitting here today sort of victorious the green belt protected I, we hoped, uh, you know, it was certainly an alarming time a year ago. Uh, we saw Bill 23 announced, which was horrific and beyond comprehension in so many different ways. We saw suddenly the green belt being carved up despite uh, all kinds of promises to protect and uh, and keep the green belt intact. And and we know so much of the value of the green belt is its integrity and permanence. And, you know, the idea of even just carving few pieces out of it suddenly shatter that integrity and shatter that permanence and impact the, the entire concept of the green belt and set off that land speculation gold rush yet again uh, so that no one can afford to uh, land in the province and, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, yeah, it was horrific time. And you know, I think back then when we knew we had to rally people and we knew we had to get people together and we had to scramble to try to find a time when, when you already are working with already busy people at an already busy time of year, how do you find a time to get together? And we decided Friday at 530, no one would be stupid enough to ever schedule a Zoom call. <laughs> so therefore, most people would be free. So let's do a call Friday at 530. And you know, here we are a year later, uh, every other Friday at 530, still having calls with dozens of people on it. And so you know, no one would have ever believed when we are in our panic to try to get a plan together initially when these plans were first announced last year, that uh, you know, no one would believe a year later, we're still meeting every Friday at 530. It's mm. still an absolutely miserable time to meet. But on the other hand, it's worked incredibly well. And as you've alluded to, we have been very successful. We've done what so many people said wasn't possible, uh, which was reverse the green belt uh, takeouts and stop big portions of Bill 23 and stop the three rural severance proposal that would have sliced every farm in the province up into Swiss cheese and, and perhaps had far bigger repercussions and even the green belt takeouts and uh you know more recently reverse a lot of these forced urban boundary expansions which then again to watch 
across the official plants in, in Hamilton and Guelph and Halton and Waterloo and these places get completely uh, compromised and shredded by the province. Uh, then again, with the same issues on the Greenbelt of, you know, land use decisions made with no data, no justification, no rationale, no information, uh, no studies, no reports or anything, and no public consultation, no First Nations engagement. This is just so against the greater public good, a democracy and probably everything that people believe are the fundamentals of good planning uh, and the values that we believe in, in, can, in as Canadians here uh, that, um, you know, it is uh, not surprising that we uh, you know, see these being reversed and people continuing to uh, protest and stand up against them. Mm-hmm. I, I tried to uh, put this forward. I, I was talking to Ashlyn Clancy for another show last week. Oh, fantastic. I, I, I was trying to get her Our take on this. Yes, the new MPP for Kitchener Center. I was trying yeah. to get her take on this because I was thinking about the um, the big protest outside Bingham's at Ford Fest. You were there. Yes. She was yeah. there. I was there. Six, yeah. six to eight hundred of us were there. <laughs> yes, exactly. More inside, more outside the gates than inside. I think so. I think so. But you know, your group was a major organizer of that, and and the yeah. the, the proposition I put to Ashland was that was kind of Doug Ford's no pun intended waterloo on this issue like that was kind of the yes. the straw that broke the camel's back at least it feels like to me like the the, yeah. the public response to that just him having a simple cookout in the back of bigamins and having a yep. thousand people out front just like really angry at him about this issue seemed to yep. really turn the tide yeah, I, I think so. I, I think two two uh, events were very seminal, but I don't want to underestimate the impact of all the actions because right. every email, every phone call, every action has been important uh, because it's people speaking up, uh, which is what's being needed. Um, but indeed, the, the Ford Fest was a... Um, uh, a significant moment because we saw labor unions, we saw you know teachers and nurses and citizens and grandmothers and everyone all coming together. And the anger, you know, when those groups of little uh, little old grandmothers with their walkers barricaded in the motorcade and separated the OPP vehicles, and you know the police got so scared they called in twenty eight police cars worth of reinforcement and uh, or twenty eight yeah. police worth of reinforcement. Uh, you know that that was something that no one was anticipating and yet showed the uh, concern of people. You know, these are grandparents who are absolutely devastated at the planet that they're leaving their grandchildren and politicians are doing nothing and they're not afraid to lay down in front of a black SUV to try to stop it and get run over in the process. And, you know, I think people really underestimate the anger and the, the vehemence and the concern that's out there. I think the other really seminal moment was the international plowing match, because right. while Ford Fest was a good meter of public uh, sentiment, the plowing match is the conservative base. It's right. out in the rural heartland. These are ridings that are conservative, have been conservative for decades. And when at the plowing match, uh, we saw, uh, first of all, we had a booth there, which was phenomenal because it wasn't that long ago that the farmers were the ones who were very concerned about the green belt. And, you know, I, I remember meetings back in the early 2000s where we had to have OPP escorts in to the meetings through leagues of angry farmers that had been busted in, concerned that the green belt was going to take away their land and prevent them from using fertilizers and all kinds of other things that, of course, weren't true and, you know, have not come to be. And the farmers have realized in the end, the green belt is actually been protecting 
protecting their farmlands and mm-hmm. you know particular tender fruit areas peaches uh, uh grapes those sort of things as well as uh you know, the the headwater areas that are often just so important to entire watersheds that uh, all depend on uh on these ecosystems for farming as well and and so to see uh the support we were getting and literally three out of four farmers passing by our booth uh, with thumbs up, expressing concerns about the green belt, expressing concerns about the corruption of the government. Uh, and then for four deaf to try to stand up and give a speech with dozens of people holding signs, literally saying, uh, Doug Ford, keep your green belt promise. You could see how shaken the premier was firsthand. And uh, that day in that event, that was also when scandals like the Las Vegas massages were coming to light. Right. The media was all over everyone. And, you know, I think it was one thing for Ford to see at Ford Fest, uh, the public anger. And you saw there were no more Ford Fest events after that Ford Fest. Instead of being the parade of parties across the province that was envisioned, there were no more after that. Uh, but um to see his own base at the plowing match turn so much against him and it just wasn't him it was every single mpp in the province was there and they were all hearing it firsthand of the concerns that this was not right this is not the way we run a government or a province and uh, anyways i i think those were two really important events but i don't want to uh, uh, overlook the importance of every single lawn right. sign all nine and a half thousand out there uh that we got out there from green belt promise on Doug Ford keeping your green belt promise. And those weren't the only ones. And you know, there's still no shortage of issues. Look at all the Highway 413 lawn signs I still see out there. <laughs> then again, you know, well after a year after the fact, you know, it's it's a good thing good quality inks were used for these signs so that they weren't fading after a year uh, because they're still there and people have mowed around them and trimmed around them and and you know tended to them carefully because then again that message still needs to be heard. There's still a lot of concerns. I want to get to those issues in a sec, but in, in speaking to the premier's surprise at kind of the reaction, and you know, he 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 had flailed for months, and you know that that led to the yeah. famous line about how the green belt was a scam. I'm still not entirely sure what the meaning of that is. I know like, or how it was a scam, but yeah. And I'm going to ask you to play sort of pop psychologist for a sec, but you know, Doug Ford, I don't think is someone, and this isn't a slight against him, but I, he's someone I don't think who thinks about the environment a lot. And it is is that your kind of take on this too he's not yeah and it's surprising because he has a cottage up north he spends a lot of time at his cottage one would think he would have a bit of an appreciation of nature uh, but it certainly never seemed to be a priority we, we saw that in his first day in uh, power when he cancelled almost every green energy contract there was and there hasn't been a solar panel or a wind turbine really installed in this province since contrary to the rest of the world uh, that is revolutionizing their grid and now we're facing all kinds of energy shortages predictions of rolling blackouts and brownouts there's all kinds of scrambling happening behind the scenes now stupidly and absurdly to turn up all kinds of fossil gas plants our peaker plants were supposed to just run occasionally uh you know a couple of percent uh, uh, of the time uh, are now sometimes as much as 30 percent of our base load uh on peak days which then again uh, this is not in the best interests of ontarians to see these plants that were never designed in this way and that emit massive amounts of pollution burning incredibly expensive fossil gases uh you know this is not the future that we need to see our children being you know killed from asthma and all kinds of air quality and air pollution issues that we solved by turning off our coal plants and in the end ended up with some of the cleanest air in the province or in the entire north america in our province right but i mean it's been kind of that weird that kind of a weirder year right where 
we had the summer of fires and we were not immune down here even though the fires were like hundreds yeah. of, like there was that one day really bad in june where you, you could be in downtown guelph and smell smoke yeah uh, i remember that because i was wearing them i was outside wearing my mask that day because the, the smell of smoke was so overpowering yeah so we had that we had this like summer where we like even if we couldn't see the fire we felt the fire's effects up from up well, and, and and we were lucky to only have a few days of it in southern Ontario. Folks True. in Ottawa had a few weeks of it. Folks in Sudbury had a few months of it. Right. Uh, and you know, how would you like to be breathing air like that for months uh, in what's supposed to be our fresh, uh, you know, uh, northern Ontario? For sure. And but you know, it's, it's sort of the point I'm getting at. Doug Ford, I think, sort of famously southern Ontario centric, sort of golden horseshoe centric, Judea centric. Yes. So yeah. he, you know, he could not escape the effects um but, but he did absolutely nothing about it well this is and what i'm getting at <laughs> that you know we're, we're and this is kind of a thing on two fronts where you're we're having these rollbacks of the green belt rollbacks of clean energy initiatives uh the print the yeah. prime minister rolling back carbon uh pricing uh for for heating oil and things like if there was going to be a year where everybody was maybe supposed to understand the breadth of the problem this would probably be it but yeah. you had all these kind of steps back this year too. Well, and I think that's the desperation we're seeing in the public. Uh, I think the bottom line is the younger generations get it. I think the older generations and the grandparents get it. Uh, I think what we have is an issue where a handful of special interest groups don't get it. And they're the ones right now that beholden to the premier and the, the people in power. Uh, and that's the troubling uh point and that you know we have the rest of the world right now at cop 28 finding solutions why isn't our premier at cop 28 announcing all the solutions that ontario will be implementing what's his plan to deal with any of this i've mm -hmm. heard nothing it's not like the legislature's sitting this week it's, like yeah, exactly <laughs> and it's not like he wouldn't like a nice <gasps> trip and and you know and, and this is one of the things that i find absolutely egregious uh to watch cam G guthrie the mayor of guelph uh mm. got uh a lot of your environmental initiatives there uh, from uh cop 28 in dubai yeah. likewise we saw the mayor of kitchener barry right. verbanovic and one of the councillors scott davies lead the charge uh to ask the province for all these forced boundary expansions throwing out their sustainable official plan that had zero farmland loss no acres of boundary expansion or uh, uh or greenfield expansion and instead as a province for for hundreds of acres of expansion uh and and take what was a completely sustainable plan of complete communities focused on intensification and walkable uh neighborhoods and 15 minute uh, service and that sort of thing and throw it out the window for uh and jeopardize all the intensification that kitchener's done so well for all this absurd amount of sprawl paving over our sensitive groundwater areas in the southwest corner the same week they trashed their sustainable environmental plan they fly off to dubai uh, to cop 28 to talk about heaven only knows what how to throw away and trash your environmental plan i have no idea but it's absolutely absurd it is interesting that and you you will disagree with this assumption i'm sure that um the the feeling is that we can't afford taking action on the climate crisis because we have an affordability crisis that they're 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 essentially two different crises and you're you're, you're about to tell me that's not true that's correct. That's correct. It is absolutely asinine for us to be building the 1.5 million homes that Doug Ford wants to build between now and 2031 and building them to yesterday's standards. 
Why every single one of those homes is not net zero. We know that in order to meet our Paris Accord targets, we need to be building these homes sustainably. We need to be having a future that's different than our past. So why are we building homes that within a year or two of being built are going to be dated and they're going to be trying to go back to figure out how to upgrade the insulation, how to put in double or triple pane windows, how to rip out the fossil gas furnace that was put in and put in heat pumps uh, that run at a fraction of the cost. Uh, it is absolutely absurd that we're building these homes to yesterday's standards when it can be shown that uh, we can actually build the modern homes more uh, economically, meaning that Yes, it might cost on average 5 to 7% more to build those homes. But when you look at the cost savings per month, they are so much cheaper to run that when you amortize things over out of the years ahead, it is cheaper to build the homes properly and have them run efficiently than it is to use uh, these dated methods and these absurd uh, ways. Uh, you know, we should not be installing natural gas into any house. In fact, California has banned natural gas connections. New York State has banned natural gas connections. You know, these are not radical places. Uh, you know, this is the norm that we need to be moving towards to meet our Paris Accord targets. Uh, we know uh, where we have to get to by 2030 and 2050 to save the planet. And this is a matter of survival. You know, this isn't nice to have or needs to have. This is trying to ensure that we actually have a survivable future. Well, where do all the wealthiest people in the world live, right? Northern yeah. California, New York City. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, it's it's not an accident that the places that have some of the highest qualities of life, Scandinavia or Europe or whatever, are the ones actually taking action uh, and are are seeing this. You know, it never ceases to amaze me here in Waterloo Region. Our climate. Uh, uh, our, our targets are being missed because our carbon emissions are still increasing. Mm. Even places like Toronto right now are decreasing their carbon emissions. Last I looked, there isn't a tremendous quality of life difference between Waterloo and Toronto. And yet Toronto's emissions are decreasing at the time that Waterloo's is increasing. Simply because for 15 years now, Toronto has brought in green development standards that has forced them to build to a higher standard. So their homes are being built uh, better. They're being built healthier. They're being built more uh, sustainably. Uh, everything from the uh, uh, angle of the sun and the windows and having the building face south and having bird-friendly glass and rainwater capture or bioswales raw. There are so many different things that are being considered as part of those green development standards in Toronto that are not being factored into any building permit here in Waterloo Region. And the difference is significant. While their builders are building to higher standards and every year or two, they move up another tier uh, and uh, they will be phasing out natural gas within the next couple of years because mm. it will be impossible to get a building permit uh, in Toronto and still meet the criteria, uh, score the number of points you need to be able to score, and they leave it to you to choose. You, you, you know, I, I look at even small little towns like Halton, the township of Halton Hills. To get mm. a building permit there, you have to score 20 points. They don't care how you do it. You can put in permeable paving, which is three points. You can upgrade your windows, which is four points. You can, you know, you, you pick and choose from whatever laundry list of initiatives you want, uh, but uh, you, you, you need to score. And, you know, it's one of those things where it increasingly you know, raises up a notch every few years. And, you know, these are not difficult things to do. Ottawa, Ajax, Markham, King Township, Halton Hill, these are all places that are out there leading with these green development standards that are making an impact. You know, I look at even places like Woolwich Township right now that has a community bulk buy program for induction stoves. Get rid of your gas stoves. We're all going to band together. And if we all in our community go together to buy an induction stove, we'll get a better rate. And you know what? We're even going to hold community cooking classes after we get our stoves to learn how to use our new stoves. You know, to me, talk about 
a win, 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 win. Everyone gets rid of their gas stove that's filling their home with all these uh, pollutants. We're getting rid of the fossil gas, which is going to save carbon. Uh, they're going to be more efficient. They're going to have healthier air in their homes, and they're going to cook much faster. And not only that, they can meet their neighbors and have a lot of fun in some cooking classes, learning how to use their new stove that's going to save them so much money. It's a win, 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 win on every front. Why are we not doing more of that? It's interesting to hear about what you said about Halton Hills, because uh, I wasn't aware of that. I'm from Georgetown. And... Huh? I, I I associate, you know, my hometown with sprawl, with like yeah. growing out, not up, like yeah. miles and miles of single detached family homes, becoming a bedroom yeah. community. But now it feels like it's kind of ahead of where we are in the big cities on that regard. Yes. Yes. Uh, in Halton Hills, that, that municipality deserves so much credit for so many things their council has brought in. They've always led on, on a whole bunch of different environmental issues over the years and continue to. And you know, that's one of those things where we're lucky. You know, we get sometimes these communities that have these pioneer politicians who have some success mm. and that then furthers them to be bold and brave to try new things again you know thank goodness toronto tried these green development standards uh you know started 10 15 years ago and it gradually over time phased in more and up the bar and you know raised the standards and you know they've done it with surprising little pushback you know mm. developers uh you know aren't overly concerned because they know that uh, that they're going to have to go that way anyways uh their big concern is they want the playing play level for everyone so if all the developers have to do it great what they don't want to see is something that's unfair that some developers have to do it and others don't or whatever but let's raise the bar equally for everyone and let's learn how to do this together i am curious about that now that you've sort of mentioned it because i you know i feel like developers can come to like Guelph city council or kitchener city council and say like you know, you could have a proactive counselor who says, like, well, what about zero net zero builds or, you know, heat pumps and that? And it's like, yeah, well, we want to do that, but it's like mm, kind of expensive. And, it, you know, if it, the add 10% to the this project, which would make it undoable, and then you're going to lose all this housing. Um, yeah. it, it feels like, you, you know, that's a little harder to do in Toronto, where, you know, you kind of have, have kind of more of a, a full time council. Also, you know, Toronto capital city of the province one of the biggest cities in north america um a little harder to push people around there so you have develop and you know developers have interest in not just in like one local area but you know all across a diverse area so i mean is this a matter of like they they know they can cope with toronto standards and then you know push around smaller municipalities and so they come out quits in the end so yeah. that's where the universality you're looking for is coming into it well, the universality and you know the bottom line is is that deleting uh, places will always be desirable, mm. uh, and people will be willing to work a little harder to be there. You know, uh, Toronto makes it such that they've actually got four tiers: a tier one, you know, I'll call it a bronze, silver, gold, and platinum uh, levels of green development standards. Uh, bronze is the minimum you have to uh, meet that level uh, but if you meet the silver level and go that little bit higher you get 50 percent development charge reduction you know mm. if you meet the gold you get 100 percent reduction or whatever you know they've put carrots in there to encourage people to go above and beyond and they also make it so that in two years bronze falls out and silver becomes a new bronze uh mm. and that you know the standards progressively come uh you know more uh strict so uh mm. you know they, they've done it in a very common sense manner and you know i look at king township as well that has brought in green development standards there 
And then again, you know, they've been able to do that and and with the support and cooperation of a lot of their builders, uh, not saying every single person's on board and that they didn't have some person complain or whatever. But on the other hand, King Township is booming if you've driven through it recently. Uh, and it's certainly a desirable place where a lot of people are saying this community is a place we want to live. And, you know, don't forget that, uh, you know, a lot of these things are appealing to consumers in the end as well. You might choose to settle in a community because the homes are more sustainable and your operating costs are going to be so much lower and it's going to last so much longer um you know there, there are a lot of compelling reasons here for these things to bring this back around though i mean that that is something that the province could drive sort of creating you know universal environmental standards we, we we should and 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 indeed the the national government our federal government has said that they will ensure the national building code is net zero by 2030 uh and the provinces will have to be in compliance with that um mm -hmm. the problem is the provincial building codes don't perfectly overlap the national building codes only about 60 percent right. overlap and which we've seen from our current provincial government they have uh no interest in these things they have very little ability to build and construct things they seem much better at taking apart and breaking things. So we're going to sit here waiting an awfully long time for them to bring in a progressive, um, uh, you know, modern standard that is going to keep us on par with the rest of the world. At this point, I will remind listeners to consult uh, an earlier episode of this podcast where we talked about the intricacies of the building code and uh, mm -hmm. how that's part of the problem, not the solution. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Getting back to the green belt, or I guess the issues around the green belt, as you were kind of indicating too, that the fight is far from over. Right. Um, the thing I take from the green belt fight is this is it's one of those things that's sort of easy to understand. It's like we have this big rim of of green, protected green uh, fields yeah. and forests and things. Like people know what you say, green belt. People can see it. But when you're talking about Highway 413, when you're talking about like official plans. Uh, when you're talking about um, the Brantford bypass, some of these like are, are a little more local um, yeah. and, and don't, aren't kind of like you you lose a bit of that sort of province wide jurisdiction. I think you get from, a you know, uniting activists and something like protecting the green belt. So I guess is that a difficulty for you going forward? Is that the the fight has, you know, kind of become smaller, more localized as opposed to something like protecting the green belt? Uh, no, because the concepts that this government is employing underneath is the exact same. Mm. We're seeing the exact same lack of public consultation, lack of engagement, lack of research or knowledge, no ideas actually how decisions are being made. Um, that same lack of transparency and, and questioning. And, and uh, it seems to be, and it doesn't matter whether it's healthcare. Uh, education, uh, land use, or whatever, uh, it seems to be driven more by a handful of well-connected uh, insiders um, than it is, and and than it is, uh, you know, designed to benefit the greater public good. And so we see again and again and again decisions being made that, that seem to represent a small special interest more so than benefit the greater public good. And that I think is very troubling and a pattern we're seeing consistently throughout this government. Mm -hmm. It's an oversight story. It's a process story as much as it is an environmental story. 
Oh, very much so. Uh, and and we're seeing them bypassing proper process time and time and time and time again. You know, how many times has the Auditor General called out the government for approving legislation before the ERO is even closed uh, mm. on the environmental registry? So, you know, bad enough, you don't even have any public consultation. Uh, but the government says, well, then speak up to the Environmental Registry of Ontario. And then before the comment period's even closed, they've rammed through the legislation, which we saw then again happen just last week with Bill 150. Uh, right. We've seen it happened multiple times before so uh you know it's um the government doesn't even uh play by their own rules or their own laws what are the lessons then that you know the the success ab about you know getting the reversal on the green belt and it, it's not it's not just that but like as you said bill 150 reversing the official plans um you, you know this this government set out an agenda last fall and they've essentially appealed half, re repealed half of it in the last year. So, like this, well, and they this, this is successful. Well, they, they didn't set out an agenda, unfortunately. Well, yeah. uh, they ran an election with no platform. And then after they were elected, they started making all these surprise announcements that no one anticipated in any way, form or manner, uh, a great number of them. Uh, and so uh, and yet we learn now through other podcasts, for example, that, you know, some people like this, you know, absurdly named person, I won't mention his name, uh, knew five <laughs> months in advance about the green belt carve outs and Bill 23 and all these things. Uh, uh, coming and and you know I won't mention Phoenix because it's his name, but you know it's just one of those things that uh, you know it appears that uh, the government was keeping this from the public. They certainly were working on things behind the scenes, and their their insiders uh, knew. And, you know, that's a concern. And, and you you mentioned the Kitchener Center by election just recently here as well. Right. You know, I think the lesson for all this is democracy matters. Mm. When we have elections where candidates don't show up, they don't mm. come to debates, they don't make themselves available to the public, they don't announce what it is their party is going to do, except for some platitudes of, you know, buck a beer or we're for the people or something like that. Uh, but no specific platform announcing what they're going to do or things like that. I think that the real lesson here is elections matter. And what we see happen during the campaign should not be uh, allowed. And it's not surprising when we don't call the candidates out for not attending debates, when we don't call them out for not having a platform, uh, when their campaign itself is full of surprises, we're the fools who then get taken advantage of when we continue to do that act activity over the next four years. When there is no public engagement, there is no consultation, there is uh, no proper processes followed or anything like that. And I think in the end, we need to learn that elections matter and we need mm. to do far better at calling out what is uh, democracy in our community and what are the expectations we have and that this is the minimum standard you're going to have if you're going to run for office and should you get elected these are the things that you need to do and this isn't acceptable to be doing all these things we see this current government doing and you know i think the record low polling has shown uh the government you know they're backtracking on these things not because they've changed their mind uh, but simply because uh their polling is so low their corruption that they're being unearthed is so significant the laws they've broken in the rcmp investigations and integrity commissioner investigations and auditor general investigations uh are you know having an impact and and this is where uh, uh, you know, as we look to the year ahead, we need to be speaking up even more. Yes, you're right. There are still all kinds of egregious things out there. You know, our conservation authorities that have been 
uh, so compromised. Uh, you know, Bill 23 that it still stands out there, our planning authority being taken away from our upper tier regions in several of these regions. Now, although it sounds like Peel is going to be reversed, and what does that mean for Waterloo Region and Halton and Niagara and others that have sat on a, a fence and and literally, you know, the, the right. cost, you know, we've lost a year and a half that we could have been building these million and a half homes that we needed. Uh, you know, the government has distracted us on so much. Uh, our region hasn't been able to operate as a region because it doesn't know whether it has planning authority or not, uh, because it was mm. supposedly taken away under Bill 23, but then put back in when developers complained so much uh, with a caveat of, well, they'll have it till at least winter of 2024. The region itself doesn't know if it's going to exist, if it's going to be amalgamated or de-amalgamated or broken up like Peel or, uh, you know, and we can't operate in an era of uncertainty when the world is already uncertain enough and climate change and these other things are causing enough chaos. We need all the certain that we can. And good governance should be providing that long-term solid confidence that is the last thing that this government is doing or inspiring in any way, form, or manner. Uh, you know, it's a miracle that many ways businesses aren't fleeing from our province right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, certainly drove away any of the green energy companies or any of the world leaders that were doing the innovative things to green our grid and do all those sort of things that we know we're going to need. Somehow we still need to get those back and get to where we need to be for the future and where the rest of the world's already going. But you know, even other things, the most basic things like the high-speed rail that Doug Ford canceled in his first week, that was to have been create, completed by 2025. That <laughs> would have been high-speed rail connecting Kitchener, Guelph, Toronto, uh, Ottawa, Montreal, all in and operating by 2025. And yet he canceled those plans. And where do we sit today? Uh, some half-completed construction on the 401 uh, that's still as gridlocked as ever. Uh, uh, and no plan to move, uh, unlike the rest of the world. Look at the amount of high-speed rail that China has built in the last five years alone. Uh, you know, we're getting left behind. And mm. frankly, we need more progressive governments. And this is where I challenge the federal governments as, as well. You know, we see an alarming number of patterns between our provincial conservative party and the federal conservative party. And it is very disturbing to see that same lack of accountability, lack of planning, uh, and, and determination to destroy more than to create uh, into the future. And that's very troubling because that's not going to get us where we need to be in the years ahead. I had one more question about the fight not being over, but I think you answered it. Um, so I'll leave it there. Kevin Thompson, thank you so much for all yeah. your time today. Well, you're welcome. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to make this sound like it's a rant against certain political parties. But on the other hand, you know, we are in a climate crisis. Uh, we know that the future is going to be valid, very challenging. Doesn't matter whether it's clean air to breathe, as you've alluded to with these fires, be it water, be it food, uh, be it even just basic housing affordability or jobs or those sort of things. There's a lot of things we need to be getting right. And we know that we're not heading in the right directions and that we need to be doing these things better. So hopefully people continue to speak up, stay involved and engaged in their community and uh, you know, speak up for the future they want to see. And, you know, if there's a local group that they want to get involved with, uh, you know, they can certainly do that. Right, Kevin? Yes. Well, and, you know, it has been absolutely <laughs> phenomenal to see how many people have signed up and joined the Grand River Environmental Network. We've had more people join us in the last year than we did the previous nine years before that. And so, you know, it is just, uh, uh, you know, great to see people 
uh, who have said it, they have enough. And, you know, the number of times we had protests this past year where it was people saying, you know, I've never been to a protest before. I've never done mm. this before, uh, but I can sit home no longer. Uh, and it, it's unfortunate when people are driven to those extremes. On the other hand, thank goodness we live in a democracy where people can get out and express themselves. And in the end, as we've seen with the Greenbelt reversals and all these other things, it can have an impact. And mm -hmm. you know, we need to make sure we hold our governments to account and ensure we get the future that we need. Well, there you go. Uh, again, Kevin, thanks for your time. Uh, the fight's not over. And uh, I know you're not done fighting either. So thanks for, for giving, some, giving, giving us some of your time. It's appreciated. Well, thank you, Adam. Thank you for covering these important issues. Reach out anytime and we'll see if we can get the future we need. Once again, that was Kevin Thomason. You can learn more about the Grand River Environmental Network at their website, gren.ca. Essentially, that is green without the extra E. So gren.ca. Hope that was easy to keep in mind. Anyway, that is it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, or send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, you can check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, see you next time. <laughs>